What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. The trade war on Christmas is over. President Trump started the week by delaying another round of tariffs on China. An additional 10% levy on $300 billion worth of Chinese imports was set to go in effect on September 1st. But the administration announced that certain products on the list were in the clear until mid-December. The White House has long maintained that China is the one footing the bill for the tariffs, not the American consumer. But this week after the news was dropped, President Trump said the move was done to help holiday shoppers. We discussed the news with Eswar Prasad. Eswar is professor at Cornell University, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the former head of the IMF's China division. We started by asking what this would mean for talks going forward. Everything could change by tomorrow morning, Scarlett, in a new tweet, or perhaps even this evening. Uh, but as of now, things look somewhat more positive than they did say yesterday. Uh, but has anything fundamentally changed? My view is that this move essentially represents a move to protect American consumers to some extent and represents a move to reduce the impact of the trade war on American uh, businesses, on the American economy, and uh, on U.S. financial markets. Yeah. But has anything fundamentally shifted? Hardly. Um, if you think about the fact that these are just delayed tariffs, if one wants to think about this as an olive branch being offered to the Chinese, remember just this morning, right after the tariff delay was announced, we had a tweet from Trump where he basically took the Chinese to task for what he called massive currency devaluation, which is certainly not true uh, in terms of what the Chinese are doing. They're just allowing a little bit of market-driven uh, depreciation of their inminbi. So I don't think there is any basis for the huge surge uh, in financial markets. Certainly some companies like Apple, as you mentioned, are going to benefit in the short run. But fundamentally, this alters nothing in terms of the very prickly relationship between the two countries. Interestingly, of course, you've, you're the author of a, of a book, Gaining Currency, The Rise of the Remimbi. Where then of the Remimbi? Where then of the Yuan at the moment? Do you think that we'll see further weakness, but at a cautious rate, as we've seen thus far, coming from the PBOC? The Chinese had, until about a week ago, exercised a lot of restraint, trying to make sure that the market pressures for depreciation of the renminbi or yuan against the dollar did not come to pass. They were intervening in foreign exchange markets. But once it became clear that the gloves were coming off in the trade uh, fight, they allowed the currency to depreciate somewhat. But of course, it's a delicate issue for Beijing because if they did allow significant depreciation, you could, as in 2015-2016, have a currency depreciation capital outflow spiral. So I don't think they're going to use this task, but they will allow markets to guide the renminbi down somewhat more if 
those pressures can be contained. So I think if the trade war doesn't come off, if we don't see a path towards a negotiated settlement between the two sides, and I frankly don't see one, I think the Chinese will test markets, see if some additional renminbi depreciation can be accommodated without setting off a huge amount of capital outflows. It's kind of ironic that the U.S. branded China a currency manipulator after it decided to let the markets guide the Chinese currency lower uh, when it was keeping the Chinese currency where it was um, and, and not letting it weaken. We, we seem to be OK with it. Talk a little bit about how China has used the fact that its institutions are not independent, are, are responsive and must respond to the central government, an advantage in, in, its, in its trade war with the U.S.? No, one might argue that the fact that China is a command economy um, and also uh, run by an authoritarian government that is able to control the flow of information to its people gives China a tremendous advantage in its trade war. When you own a significant part of the economy, when you own a significant part of the financial system, especially the banks, it gives you a lot of control. But Beijing has been trying to modernize its economy, trying to push forward with market-oriented reforms and uh, bring in foreign investment and use foreign investment uh, as a way of acquiring technology, as a way of uh, uh, trying to uh, modernize its financial system and other parts of the economy. And that's the part that's going to be affected by the trade war and China's beginning to look a little more inward if it chooses that path to fight the trade war. If it doesn't move forward with market-oriented reforms, liberalization, and creating a better ground for foreign investors and foreign technology to come in, China is going to be hurt in the long run. So in the short run, China does have the tools to manage the trade war, but how it fights the trade war could end up having very significant long-term implications for Chinese productivity growth and economic growth more broadly. And at the moment, Ishwa, China has, and Xi Jinping, has headaches on several fronts. And we've been covering all of today the protests that continue in Hong Kong. Do you see an end in sight for this particular headache of Xi Jinping? Will we see China crack down more firmly? What will happen to Hong Kong and indeed some of the other territories that are, are currently one country, two systems? That is a very uh, delicate issue. I mean, when one thinks about the Hong Kong protesters, they are fighting for what seems like the soul of the city. Um, uh, at some level, um, Beijing has given Hong Kong a fair degree of autonomy that has allowed Hong Kong to maintain its status as an international financial center. But the longer these protests go on, the more uh, it affects the perception that Beijing has control over all of its territory. So one might see Beijing stepping in. If that were to happen, and I certainly hope it doesn't, that could be a a very significant blow to Hong Kong. What is happening on the streets in Hong Kong is going to lead to some short-term economic disruption, but if Beijing does step in with a heavy hand, it's going to affect the perception of international investors and indeed domestic investors um, that Hong Kong is a place ruled by the um, uh, rule of law. Now one must make the point that Beijing does view itself as basically uh, supporting the rule of law, but it's a very narrow definition. It's a rule of law that is necessary to enforce property rights, contractual rights that are necessary for a market-oriented system to work well. Yeah. But the sort of rule of law we might think about is one where the rule of law supersedes the government, and that's not what the Chinese have in mind. So it's a very dangerous and delicate time for Hong Kong. Absolutely. we got to ask you about Argentina as well. As you know, um, there's questions, concerns about a, a debt default by Argentina. And of course, we've seen this before in 2011. Where does that leave the IMF, which of course uh, has given a bailout to the country, but not all the payments have been made. What happens there? 
The political situation in Argentina is certainly worrying to international investors and to the IMF. The IMF had expected that the present government would stay on in power and that the, uh, settle, uh, the uh, package that the Argentinians had negotiated with the IMF, that there would be some progress. Uh, but clearly, if a new government does come into place, that's going to be very difficult to sustain the agreement. So it's hard to imagine how the IMF could continue uh, sustaining um, the support that Argentina very much needs. Um, so I think if the new government does come into place and it does reverse some of the reforms put in place, it's going to be quite difficult for the IMF and the international community more broadly to sustain its support for Argentina, and that could spell some fairly dark days for Argentina, especially in terms of its access to international financial markets. This week, Argentina's currency collapsed to a record low. The peso, long famed as the world's worst performing currency, plunged on Monday by 30% after a shock election result. President Mauricio Macri was upset by the opposition by a wide margin of more than 15%. While it was just a primary vote, the result is widely seen as a preview of what to expect in October. To understand why investors were scared by the results, we spoke with veteran distressed investor Hans Humes. Hans is the CEO and CIO of Greylock Capital Management, which specializes in emerging markets. We started by asking him if he was surprised by the magnitude of the market's response. Yeah, I was. I'm, I mean, back at the beginning of last year, I think that the market in general, emerging market, crossover investors were overweight Argentina. And given the economic problems the country had, some of the you know, troubles that Macri had, the drought meant, I thought, that people had squared up their positions. But the fact that the sell-off in terms of magnitude was pretty much the difference differential between Macri and Fernandez, that's a big move. And I, I wasn't alone in think, being surprised how bad the move was. Recession, austerity, in inflation, interest rates skyrocketing. It wasn't as though Macri was a safe pair of hands. Why does the market deem him so much better than Alberto Fernandez? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, that's a very fair question. And I think that a lot of it just had to do with the expectations that he had coming in after Chris, Christina Fernandez, the Kirshner, that the Kirshners had mismanaged the economy so badly that there was all this goodwill. And the language that Macri and his team spoke was the language that Wall Street understands. Mm. In fact, a lot of them had come from Wall Street. So I think people just see him as better than the alternative. Now, Christina decided to run as a vice president with Alberto Fernandez, um, but I think in terms of, it, we shouldn't have been that surprised hmm. because Macri came in promising that he was going to solve all the problems, and he hasn't. So I think the general population has probably gotten very disaffected. But it's, you know, it's important to note that only one poll showed anything close to this differential. Yeah. I mean, most of the polls were single digits. One poll had a 12 to 13 percent gap. It turned out closer to 15. Imagine that poll's not really reflecting what's going on on the ground. Hmm. You're yeah. speaking to a Brit. I mean, <laughs> something that we've experienced plenty of times since the summer of 2016. You mentioned that you were taken aback by the magnitude of the moves. So were others. Talk a little bit about the crowding into Argentinian assets. Who is invested in Argentina right now? Are they hedge funds? Are they institutional investors, pension funds, individual investors? I think uh, most emerging market people, I mean, if you think about the borrowing that the Macri administration did when they first came in, they raised billions upon billions, billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, so most emerging market firms t 
got exposure with the additional borrowing they did. Um, but I would say broadly speaking, and not individual investors, but virtually every single emerging market fund that you can look at will have Argentina exposure. It's a very heavy weighting in the index. Mm -hmm. So if you're tracking the, the, uh, the index, you're invested in Argentina. Um, hedge funds, crossover guys, I mean, you know, now, even after the sell-off, you can get yields approaching the mid-teens. On the short end, the curve, it's over 30%. On the long end, it's anywhere from sort of 12 to 14%. So those are very attractive, distressed. Kind of irresistible. Yeah. <laughs> well, but even back on Friday, you're looking at something close to double digits. Yeah. So it was, you know, it looked like it was worth the risk, but the magnitude of this loss, I think, spooked a lot of people. What's the worst case scenario and do you think it will come to bear? Do you think that these sorts of sell-off is, is, is necessary and, and a good reflection on what could happen? Uh, worst case scenario, listen, we, we were better buyers this morning given the magnitude of the, the move. Um, I think whenever you see something gap down like this, it's usually not a good time to stick your you know, toe in the water if not your foot. Um, but the worst case scenario is pretty daunting. You could get a sort of a return to the interventionist policies of the Kirshner administrations. Um, Kichilov might decide that he's, he has antipathy towards the market is very deep-rooted. Okay, talk a little bit more about him. Why is he such a central player and, and what do we know, need to know about him? Um, I mean, he's been with the, the uh, you know, Kirshner group for a long time. He's a bit strident, but he's not I mean, to flip it around, I mean, he's been there, he's a loyalist. Um, he did very well in the gubernatorial election, so, you know, chances are he's going to be involved in the political dialogue mm. going forward. Um, but neither he nor, you know, Fernandez are stupid in any ways. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if they do prevail. Mm. And I think that Macri saying that he's going to turn around and make this work, it, he's, his ex. I, he's being a bit too optimistic. I think the chances he'd really have to draw an inside straight to, you know, get into a second round in October and then prevail in November. There just aren't, don't seem to be enough votes to pick up. Um, but I think that you could, people might be surprised like they were with Lula for a while that, wait a second, these guys kind of learned not to yeah. be off the radar screen of the international financial system, you know, play ball. They yeah. probably learned something in the, you know, quite a long time that Nestor and Christine ran the show. Such currency crisis, such sell-offs in your FX probably focuses the mind a little bit as to what can and can't be achieved. What do you think about the relationship with the IMF going forward? Because that was a really important bailout. Yeah, and uh, Ms. Lagarde, I think, left her acting head, David Lipton, a bit of an... <laughs> A, long a bit of a present. Um, it did, oh, what is it, $56 billion? I mm. think that uh, they, they, there's no question that they've been speaking to the people in the Fernandez camp, but I think that they, like many other people in the market, were just hoping that, okay, we know it's a coin toss, but it's going to come up mockery eventually. Now they have to start really doing some game planning. But it's, uh, it's going to be it'll be difficult. I mean, regardless of who takes over in, you know, the presidency of Argentina is going to have a tough road, you know, going forward. And it's on that point I want to pick up. I'm going to ask a really obvious question. Why is it always that Argentina seems to be in some sort of crisis? The country has natural resources, so it's, it's got stuff to work with. So it must be a matter of governance, but no matter who's in charge, it seems to always end up in, in dire straits. You know, yeah, my, my knee-jerk answer to that question would get me a number of headlines on Bloomberg, so I'll probably back off. Give us <laughs> the politic answer then. No, I think it's, 
they, it, you can make a very long argument about the tradition of Peronism that you got a lot of the population thinking that they could get something for nothing. So the kind of reforms that you need to undertake to make an economy function were, weren't, weren't a f reforms that the Argentine population was willing to take. And it, you know, when things get tough, you know, one, they seem to have some bad luck. Um, the drought, for instance. You know, the drought really made, made, you know, created some problems. Um, but I, you know, it's fair to say, I, I guess, you know, it, the country, it's a beautiful country with a ton of natural resources and it's populated by Argentines. So, you know, you, it, it, it's amazing. Uh, back in the old days, I think we all expected Argentina um, to have problems, but they come back more often than you expect. You'd expect the problems to flare up every decade. Now it's happening every year or two. I mean, somebody modeled out in probability doing an actuarial table how many times Argentina will have to restructure their 100-year bond. Mm -hmm. And per the actuarial tables, eight times in the next century. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This week, U.S. core inflation hit a six-month high. July was a hot month for consumer prices, which unexpectedly rose across the board and came in ahead of economist estimates. We spoke with Skanda Amarnath, Director of Research and Analysis at Employ America. Skanda is also a former economist at MKP Capital Management and a former research analyst at the New York Fed. He broke down what the data means for the Fed and why he thinks the central bank's new revelations about the labor market may warrant a new approach to policy. So the CPI number we got today, I think it was almost a little bit of validation for Jay Powell saying that uh, the slowdown in inflation earlier this year was uh, transitory. And a lot of people said, oh, you're not being credible about inflation. And I think at least what we're learning now is some of that is recovering. Some of that was about seasonal adjustment problems um, with respect to new methodologies. And so when we actually look back, you actually look at that chart, it doesn't really look like inflation has changed all that much in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> really? So, I see. Yeah, yeah. I'm right? soaring in July. <laughs> <laughs> you made a good point, and you say, okay, obviously, like, maybe uh, inflation is not dipping. But from a risk management perspective, your view is, and I think you compared it on Twitter, if they, if they declare victory now and say, okay, we got there, and they don't see the need to cut that. That's like, you know, throwing a pick six in football. Very risky. Why is that? Why should they not look at that chart and say, look, inflation's not diving. We don't have any more work to do. Yeah. So I go back to a quote from Rich Clarida, I think back in 2007, when he says, core inflation is actually a lagging indicator by about 12 to 18 months in terms of where inflation tends to trough and peak relative to activity. So core inflation, we shouldn't really be using that as the guide for what to do next, right? It's telling us something about maybe the past um, 12 to 18 months. 
we've all had these debates about the Phillips curve, what it actually means to have a hot labor market, a hot economy. But inflation itself right now is probably not the signal to look at. It's maybe the part of the broader goals for the Fed, but let's not confuse sort of real-time indicators that matter for the future trajectory of the economy with something that's probably telling us um, something a little bit from further back. So then what about the jobless rate? What if that continues to go lower? I mean, we get below 4% and we stay there. How does that change the picture? I think it depends on what we get out of that, right? right. In terms of what it shows for wage growth, what it shows for um, sort of signs of inflation acceleration. I think it's interesting to compare what Jay Powell has been saying about the labor market now mm. with mm. sort of this view of the natural rate being about 4.3%. Jay Powell is actually talking about the fact that the labor market recovery we're seeing, this tight labor market, is actually helping to overcome persistent weakness in a lot of communities, mm. low and moderate income communities, so it's starting to get to the lower end of the income spectrum. Um, which is really different from that sort of view that we have to keep unemployment at a stable rate itself. And it's quite a different view from other monetary policy makers at the Federal Reserve, right? Yeah. This was what makes Jay Powell distinct, as he seems to be fighting for, well, taking, taking on with monetary policy inequality in the U.S. Well, at least it's part of the puzzle, right, that supportive monetary policy, trying to avoid recessions is actually a really beneficial um, it's a big benefit to communities that have typically been left out of um, sort of this expansion up until this point. And what he's been talking about to Congress, talking about to the public through his press conferences, that language is really actually at odds with sort of what the Fed has traditionally said, that they can only control the labor market in the short run, but long run, it's all about inflation, right? So, Right. So what did Ben Bernanke, and we, I remember uh, Jenny Yellen talked about this a little bit, some of the benefits of running a hot labor market, yeah. but she didn't fully go there. But talk about what did Ben Bernanke see as the limits of what monetary policy could do for some of the structural issues of the U.S. economy versus what Jay Powell apparently sees? Yeah, so Ber Chair Bernanke, um, especially in 2011 to 2013 when he was arguing for QE, the Congress was really pressuring him on the whole idea of, why are you doing this? It's not really going to matter. And he pretty much said, well, yeah, our policies can only make a difference to a certain point. But once you get to about 5 to 6% unemployment, our role kind of is to step back. We will only create inflation in the process. We're not really going to affect the long run. Um, what Jay Powell is saying is actually we do have a role to play still in terms of trying to at least cut off that um, sort of recession left tail risk and in the process keep and preserve the tight labor market and preserve the benefits that come from that, which are towards things that we typically said in terms of overcoming long-run weakness in a lot of communities. People who weren't hired before are now being hired. People who were written off as because of their criminal records, because of um, factors that were, I guess, discriminatory in a way, are now being given a second chance, being given a second look. But, um, but does this run the risk then of sort of getting a little bit too far out from what the mandate is mm -hmm. or, or trying to redefine it in a way that Congress maybe didn't intend? Well, Humphrey Hawkins' mandate says for maximum employment, right? It's not optimal unemployment. It's not just, just the right level. It's maximum employment in the context of price stability. So I don't think it's actually that much of a stretch to say that this is actually consistent with that. Now, of course, like, there is the fact that monetary policy is part of the picture. There are other things we could do to improve um, on other issues itself. And just to uh, button this up, we have a chart that's pretty cool that you made, you posted it, and it shows the uh, prime age employment rate versus the FOMC longer run unemployment rate projection. What does this mean? The long run is shaped by the short run. What do we learn from this chart? So the white line is referring to the FOMC members' uh, 
projections of really the natural rate of unemployment, right? The idea of what's that, that just right unemployment rate right. below which we'll get inflation. And that's supposed to be the point where so that's like not determined by central banks, it's not determined by monetary policy. But in reality, as conditions have gotten better, the, F the Fed's own views or the F FOMC members' own views of what's possible in the long run have improved, right? So as we go further um, in terms of labor market progress, we also learn there's more that can be done. So the short run, long run differentiation isn't as helpful, I'd say, as um, some might like to presume. Then we got an Emerging Markets Roundup with Fabiana Fideli. Fabiana is the Global Head of Fundamental Equities and a Portfolio Manager on the Emerging Markets Equities team at Robco. Only a few months ago in May, the sector saw a major rebound in EM stocks and even bonds. But come July, that rally fell off a midsummer cliff. Now with the inverted yield curve and growing concerns about a coming global recession, we started by asking her if there was any real hope for another rebound in emerging markets before the end of the year. The only hope that I can see is actually in a trade deal, mm. if that ever happened before the end of the year. Clearly, the possibilities are dwindling as we get closer to the end and we get closer also to when the campaign starts at the beginning of next year. But if we were to have a trade deal, that would be positive for emerging markets. The key here is that as a trade deal really increases the uncertainty of companies to invest, it's going to hit the bottom line. And emerging markets are very uh, sensitive to that. So, and you can see it already in the earnings. 40% of the companies in emerging markets have reported. And earnings, unfortunately, are not as we would have hoped. There, we're starting to see some downward revisions. Nonetheless, EMs have been underperforming U.S. markets for years now. I think the ratio of EM to the S&P peaked in like 2011 or maybe even 2010. So even prior to the trade war, there was something structural going on. Trade war aside, is there anything that changes that longer trend? Like, what happened? Why have EMs per, uh, perpetually underperformed? And what would change even if they did get a U.S.-China deal? Actually, the answer is really simple. EM will outperform developed markets when the earnings growth of emerging markets is expected to be higher than the earnings growth of developed markets. And actually, if you look at the two curves, they really go together and they have been like really gone in synchrony for many years. So if you think about it, after the crisis in 2010, because that's when emerging markets really felt the crisis. Right. That's when net profit margins came down. Well, instead, particularly in the U.S., net profit margins start, kept stable. And that's when emerging markets started to underperform. You never buy emerging markets just because they're cheap. You buy them when you see this uplift in earnings growth. If we see the Fed come out with shock and awe, and finally the dollar stays lower for a little bit longer, would that be enough to turn sentiment for the short term? Yes, but the Fed would have to be very, very dovish. So, and the only thing that I can see happen is that they come out at Jackson Hole and they say, you know, they give out a statement that really indicates that they want to support the economy and global markets. But still, that's not going to be enough. I mean, at some point, the chickens will come to roost and you will see the impact of the trade war on earnings. And that will hurt particularly emerging markets. So as long as the trade conflict stays, um, emerging markets will most likely underperform. And I think all markets, all global markets can perform poorly 
equity markets, but the U.S. within that context will probably outperform because it has always been, if you want, the more defensive market. So one theme that we're seeing uh, a lot of traders bring up is this idea that uh, governments don't really have the proper sort of mechanisms to sort of address the global slowdown, whether we're talking monetary policy, fiscal policy. I want to turn to Argentina because with the election or the primary, I should say, that just happened and the potential uh, election of Fernandez, I'm wondering if the government there is going to be able to sort of, I guess, deliver, I guess, what the public wants, the populace wants, and at the same time keep the markets and the investors and uh, keep those folks happy as well. Yeah, and the answer is probably no. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually disagree with those economists on one point, that some governments do have the ability to start fiscal stimulus, but they've just chosen not to do it. And you can see plenty of examples in Europe, for example. Um, Germany, to name one. Yes, yes, <laughs> to name one. Uh, but in Argentina, it's very different. Uh, in Argentina, the, the government needs to implement policies that will necessarily help you know, hurt the population. Mm. And, you know, that is obviously not popular when you have an election. And I think that is what we have seen during the primaries. And now, really, the government is, you know, between a rock and a hard place. Uh, We have seen that they've actually issued a small stimulus package, uh, but that's not going to be enough. I really doubt that it will kind of move the needle. I find this comment to be really interesting about how you can't just sort of look at the cheapness of emerging markets. And as long as the trajectory of earnings is weaker than uh, developed market earnings, they're unbuyable. Does that mean it's not worth looking at sort of specific country opportunities? Or are there perhaps even in this environment, which is not great due to trade and other factors, perhaps EMs that at least look interesting or might be closing in on a bottom? You know, you have a point. Actually, one of the biggest mistakes that investors have made over the last few years is to look at all emerging markets as a homogeneous asset class. They are not homogeneous. India, Brazil, China, you know, the risks and opportunities that each of these countries will face are very different. So we do still see opportunities in emerging markets. Clearly, Argentina right now has some issues. We would not want to be there. You're really catching a falling life. But there are other countries that are far more interesting. And I think, you know, even the current context will do well. I always find it amazing. I don't think it's even classed as emerging market, but Jamaica, I think, is the best performing stock exchange still so far this year. Greece has been up there too, and it apparently is an emerging market. So Apparently so. <laughs> and that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.